Hello. In this second of four lectures, I want to look at forced migration and at the evolution of international refugee law and organization. The international community now has some, has some 80 years' experience in responding to displacement of populations. And it has a long series behind it, a long series of international agencies, which it has established to deal with aspects of the refugee phenomenon. There's a long history, too, of arrangements between states, a building up of practice and law and rules. The dominant themes in the response of the international community to refugee flows are relatively straightforward. First of all, protection of the refugee. Secondly, work towards solutions for refugees. Thirdly, the establishment of international agencies with a view to promoting cooperation between states. And fourthly, and perhaps most interestingly, agreement consensus on what is and who is a refugee. In the responses of states, not surprisingly, we meet a combination of humanitarianism on the one hand and self-interest on the other. But perhaps that should not come as a surprise to those of us working in this area of international law and practice. There's one word in my opening introduction that I want to, I want to stress, and that is protection. Protection in this context has a rather special meaning. It means not so much physical protection as the use of legal tools, international treaties, national laws, which set out the obligations of states and which are intended to ensure, amongst other things, that a refugee in search of asylum is not penalized, not expelled, not refooled, that is, sent back to a country in which he or she would be at risk of death, torture, or persecution. Which would ensure equally that every refugee enjoys the full complement of rights and liberties to which he or she is entitled as a refugee. And finally, that the human rights of every refugee are guaranteed. And international law provides a relatively sophisticated context in which to pursue these protection goals. At the same time, of course, as much of international law is, it is in a state of evolution. Now, as you will see from the table, international organizations of one shape or another have existed since the early 1920s and continue to this day and doubtless will continue into the future. The range of international organizations established under the League and then under the UN is various. Many of them were ad hoc, temporary agencies. There was a great deal of reluctance in the early stages of international organization to admit that the refugee phenomenon might be with us always. But over time, of course, international organizations, particularly under the United Nations, have firmly established themselves in the arrangements between states. But let us go back to the 1920s. The president of the International Committee of the Red Cross sent an urgent message to the League of Nations there were, he said, some 800,000 refugees, primarily Russians at that time, refugees in the aftermath of the First World War, refugees from the Soviet Revolution of 1917, whom he said were destitute, unable to find solutions, unable to travel abroad to settle elsewhere. He urged that the League do something about this situation. And the League, to its credit, did. In 1921, it appointed the first League of Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, naming the Norwegian Friedhof Nansen to this post. A very wise move. Nansen himself, a polar explorer amongst other things, had also broad humanitarian experience, having helped with famine relief in Soviet Russia 
and having helped with the repatriation of prisoners of war. An individual then who was well placed to come to grips with, to get to grips with some of these urgent problems affecting refugees. Nansen, in his first efforts, identified what turned out to be one of the most significant issues in promoting solutions for refugees, and that was to secure the agreement of states to the issue of identity certificates. That simple act, the issue of an identity certificate, paved the way for many refugees in Europe at that time to find their own solution, to gain employment, and then eventually for some, for many indeed, to travel beyond Europe to new lives in other countries. Because that first identity certificate evolved into what came to be known as the Nansen passport, the refugee passport. A simple enough document, but one which enabled refugees to find solutions to their predicament. The initial agreement between states was in relation to Russian refugees. But it rapidly became apparent that there were many others similarly situated who also needed the help and support of the international community. There were Armenians, Assyrians, Assyro-Chaldeans. Then with developments in Spain, there were refugees from fascism, from Nazism, and eventually from war. The responses of the League were largely ad hoc. New responsibilities were added to the mandate of the High Commissioner. New arrangements were promoted for each and every new group of refugees. But there were two characteristics which were present in each League of Nations response to the identification of those who should be helped. First of all, the refugee was identified by reference to his or her national or ethnic origin as being someone who had been formerly a citizen, for example, uh, of Russia. But as someone also who was now without the protection of the government of their country of origin. And it was those two elements by reference to origins and lack of protection that we find the League approaching the question of who is a refugee to be assisted by the international community. Now, throughout the 1920s and 1930s, various League of Nations offices and high commissioners attempted to deal with this growing number of refugees, in particular from fascism and Nazism. There was a crisis in the late 1930s, a crisis which President Roosevelt urged the international community to deal with, calling for an international conference to be held at Avion that year. It was hoped by many who attended that conference that somehow the exodus from Nazi Germany could be mitigated, that perhaps Nazi Germany would allow refugees to depart in an orderly fashion, that perhaps receiving states, other states might open their doors to such refugees who perhaps indeed again would not be deprived of all their positions, possessions. A somewhat unrealistic list of expectations and not unexpectedly one that was not uh, to be realized in practice. Because the conference was ultimately unable to deal with refugee causes. It was unable to deal with refugee exodus, and of course its expectations were overcome by developments, in particular by the Second World War. Strangely, the refugee organizations set up by the League of Nations and by the 1938 conference continued through the war through an organization known as the Intergovernmental Committee. And even during the course of the war, there came to be established the first organization concerned with the return, the repatriation of those displaced by conflict. It was set up in 1943. It was called then the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, the phrase United Nations being used in practice even before the UN as we know it today came into existence. 
But the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration had a very much a, a war-related series of objectives. It existed primarily to take responsibility for the displaced from off the shoulders of the military so that they could continue to conduct uh, hostilities uh, un unimpeded by the problems of refugees and the displaced. What the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration was not equipped to do, what it was not mandated to do, was to find solutions for those who did not want to go back to their homes, to their countries after the conflict. It was not as such a refugee organization, but a return, uh, a return and repatriation organization. It was, though, to be replaced by an organization that was more focused on the refugee as someone who is unable or unwilling to go back to their country of origin. But before that, it is worth recalling certain basic provisions of the UN Charter, which, con which dominated the manner in which the UN's refugee agencies were established, and which has continued to influence the mandates of refugee organizations since. The principle that I want to recall in particular is that of Article 2.7 of the Charter, which says that nothing in the present Charter shall authorize the United Nations to intervene in matters, in any matters which are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state. That principle of non-intervention has in many respects dominated the manner in which the United Nations has approached issues of displacement ever since, or at least until very recent times. It has, for example, prevented the United Nations effectively adopting early warning systems for refugee displacement. It has prevented the United Nations, up to now at least, uh, involving itself effectively and proactively in matters of internal displacement. In this new millennium, in this new decade, of course, we will want to reconsider the principle of non-intervention with reference to internal displacement and refugees in the light, of course, of the responsibility to protect the provisions uh, insofar as the responsibility to protect, particularly as that is reflected now in the summit outcome document of 2005. But to keep us back in the 1940s for the moment, I want to turn in particular to one resolution adopted very early on at the first session of the General Assembly held at Church House, Westminster, uh, in London. Then, in the immediate period of post-war displacement and conflict, when Europe was still struggling to cope with the victims of Nazism, with those displaced by war, it was decided by the General Assembly that certain general principles should be endorsed. The first principle which the General Assembly accepted in, in its eighth resolution of its first session in February of 1946 was that the refugee problem is international in scope and nature. A simple enough phrase, perhaps, but one which confirmed the recognition given in earlier times that no one state should have to shoulder responsibility for refugee inflows, that the international community was there to assist in the shouldering of that responsibility in meeting the, in, in meeting the individual and material costs. The second general principle endorsed by the General Assembly in 1946 was that no refugees or displaced persons should be compelled to return to their country of origin. This idea, which we now describe in the phrase non-refoulement, has entrenched itself firmly in treaty and customary international law. But the third principle adopted was that repatriation should be pursued and assisted. And it helps to emphasize that ideally we will help the refugee to get back to where they, belo where they belong, to where they came from, and help them, if we can, to rebuild the lives which have been broken off 
through the collapse of the normal relationship between individual and state. The General Assembly instructed the Economic and Social Council to establish that international agency which was considered essential to promote cooperation and solutions. But it has to be admitted at this time that the issue became particularly political and there was a major division between East and West on what should be the appropriate objectives for any United Nations engagement with refugee issues. Nonetheless, the International Refugee Organization was established. Its constitution maintained that basic principle endorsed by the General Assembly that refugees should be assisted by international action either to return to their country of origin or former habitual residence or to find new homes elsewhere. That was the goal of cooperation. At the same time, the IRO constitution recognized that refugees should be protected in their rights and legitimate interests and that they should receive care and assistance. The International Refugee Organization operated in one form or another from 1946 through 1952. It facilitated the resettlement of over a million refugees and displaced persons from European countries in particular to new lives in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, Latin America. In practice, it did very little in the way of repatriation. Only some 77,000 of refugees amongst the refugee and displaced person population returned to their countries of origin in Eastern Europe. And the reasons, of course, were highly political. The Soviet Union and its allies was not interested in supporting this organization, which in their view was giving succor to war criminals and subversives. The Western countries likewise were particularly interested in encouraging no repatriation, in promoting the idea of resettlement and in effect of using the IRO for political purposes. But it was other factors which led perhaps more directly to the end of the International Refugee Organization's operations, a concern with costs. It had been extraordinarily expensive in resettling refugees out of Europe to elsewhere. And only one or two states, the US in particular, with some help from the United Kingdom, two states in particular bore most of the budget. So it was looked forward, states looked forward to a new period in which there would still perhaps be a refugee agency, but it would be largely non-operational that costs would be minimal and it would confine itself to refugee protection at the theoretical or abstract level. Before we get to the successors to the International Refugee Organization though, there's one important development that has to be mentioned. In 1948, the General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Article 14 of this declaration in paragraph 1 says, everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. I think it important to know the origins of this phrase, which appears on the one hand to offer something to the individual in search of refuge and at the same time to take it away. The right to seek asylum, but not the right to be granted asylum. And this was indeed the subject of some controversial debate between states at the time of the drafting of the Universal Declaration. The French government, for example, had urged that this right to be effective should be written in the terms of a right to seek and a right to be granted. Other states, including the United Kingdom, said that this was a step too far, that if it were to be drafted in those terms, it would infringe too much 
upon the sovereign competence of every state to determine who should be admitted and who should be granted asylum. And so we have, nonetheless, a provision on asylum which offers something but not quite enough in the modern world and which has not yet been incorporated in any substantial fashion in any regional or universal human rights instrument. Nonetheless, the importance of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, of course, is to place the idea of individual rights very much front and center in international law. And the idea of refugee rights, irrespective of the precise content or scope of the right of asylum, has been maintained and is the perspective from which many of us now come to the issue of refugee protection. As I mentioned a moment ago, there was concern that the international refugee organization should be replaced, that it should be followed by an agency which was not so expensive, not perhaps so cumbersome, and not so operational. And during 1949 and 1950, debate took place in the third committee on just what should follow the IRO. The IRO was a specialized agency. It was treaty-based. It was proposed that the General Assembly should establish a subsidiary organ under the Charter, which would be the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. It was proposed also that the High Commissioner for Refugees should be, as it were, accompanied or complemented by a treaty, a new treaty to replace the various arrangements adopted in the 20s, the 30s and the 40s, a new treaty relating to the status of refugees. That treaty was subsequently to be called the 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees. On 1st of January 1951, following the resolution 428 of the fifth session adopted by the General Assembly, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees came into existence, based in Geneva. Attached to that resolution is the statute of the office. And in this annex, in the first paragraph, we find the General Assembly identifying with laudable clarity the function of the High Commissioner. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, says the General Assembly, shall assume the function of providing international protection to refugees who fall within the scope of the present statute. This, as it were, is the guiding directive for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. But it is not the only goal. It is not the only aim. Protection does indeed serve a purpose, but it is also oriented towards solutions. And the High Commissioner in the same paragraph is directed to seek permanent solutions for the problem of refugees by assisting governments to facilitate the voluntary repatriation of refugees or their assimilation in new national communities. And these dual functions of the Office of the High Commissioner continue to this day to provide international protection and to seek together with governments permanent solutions to the problem of refugees. Now, the nature of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees Office is also interesting. It is, as I said, a subsidiary organ of the General Assembly. But those who drafted the statute were also very concerned to ensure that the High Commissioner should be independent of the UN Secretariat. It was perceived by many states that the authority of the High Commissioner as an intervener on behalf of refugees would be enhanced if he or she could be separated from what was perceived to be the politics of the Secretariat. And so the High Commissioner is not appointed by the Secretary-General, but is elected by and reports to the General Assembly. And on the second chart, which I have, you will see exactly how the relationship 
operates between the High Commissioner, the Economic and Social Council, and the General Assembly. And this standing of the High Commissioner has indeed enabled the High Commissioner at key moments to exercise an authority independent of politics and to promote the protection of refugees by reference to international legal principle rather than the particular politics of the day. Now the second aspect of phase two, if you like, of international refugee law and organization involved the conclusion of a treaty, the 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees. That treaty, which was drafted by an ad hoc committee which met in two sessions in 1950, was finalized in Geneva in July 1951. It has now been signed together with a later protocol from 1967 by some 147 states, members of the United Nations. So out of the 192 members or so, a very significant number have signed on to this basic instrument the 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees. It has its limitations. It is not an instrument which is intended to deal with the causes of refugee flows. It leaves unaddressed certain key problems, for example, in de of determining which state is responsible for looking after which refugee. It does not organize responsibility sharing. That was not its purpose. Its purpose was to identify who is a refugee, and so in Article 1 of the 1951 Convention, we find a definition which describes the refugee as someone who has left their country of origin, who is unable or unwilling to return there because they have a well-founded fear of persecution on certain grounds, race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. Now, as you can see, that is a definition which is not all-encompassing. And we can each of us think of refugees deserving protection who might not fall within, that within, within those terms. That, in fact, has been recognized through the development of complementary systems of protection, to which I will turn in a moment. The purpose of the Convention, though, was to define a refugee and then, through the series of interstate undertakings, to arrange for basic standards of treatment. Status is what the Convention is about. It's about facilitating the integration, if you like, the assimilation, the self-solution of the refugee by ensuring that he or she has access to employment, that he or she has access to welfare and social rights, and that he or she is also the beneficiary of certain refugee-specific rights, rights which are essential if the refugee is to obtain protection. So we find in the Convention, first and foremost, for example, a prohibition on the penalization of the refugee who crosses a border illegally. It was recognized that the refugee in fear of persecution in his or her own country may well not be able to satisfy documentary requirements, may not be able to get a visa, may have to sneak across the border. States accepted that in such circumstances, subject to certain limitations, the refugee should not be penalized. Secondly, it was accepted by states that refugees should not be expelled save on the most serious grounds, primarily national security, and that they should, in principle, always be entitled to due process, to know the reasons against them, to be able to meet the case against them. Thirdly, and particularly importantly, states in 1951 set down in the 1951 Convention, set down in the Convention, in Article 33, the principle of non refoulement No state shall 
in any manner whatsoever, return, refoulé, a refugee to the frontiers of territory where his or her life might be threatened within the reasons mentioned in Article 1. Although the Convention recognizes certain exceptions of this principle, these have largely been overtaken by parallel developments in the human rights context. What is remarkable, though, is that states which have always and hitherto tended to incline to a more or less absolute competence in matters of immigration, of who shall be admitted and who should be allowed to remain, have nonetheless, in relation to the refugee, accepted a very serious restriction on their sovereign competence, non-refoulement. Finally, the Convention also seeks to make provision for naturalization. States accept no particular obligation save that of facilitating it. But it reflects this obligation of facilitation again. States' natural concern to maintain control over nationality and definition of the state community, but also a willingness to facilitate at least that ultimate solution of the refugees' predicament, which, if returned to their country of origin is not available, uh, may be the most effective. Today we have then an organization, the international, we have then the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and a series of obligations accepted by states in relation to the protection of refugees. We have also what can be identified, we can see quite clearly emerging out of state practice and treaty, seven principles, we might say, of international refugee law, principles which we will have occasion to look at in more detail in later, in later lectures. There is first and foremost the principle of asylum. That still exists, notwithstanding the fact that the Article 14 provisions of the Universal Declaration have not specifically been incorporated in regional or, in, or universal treaties. There is still something nonetheless left in that recognition that states gave to the right of every individual to seek asylum, to flee in effect, even if there could be no absolute guarantee that any particular door will be opened in his or her favor. The exercise of that right to seek asylum is buttressed, firmly buttressed, though, by the principle of non-refoulement. States may retain discretion in relation to asylum, but they retain little or no discretion in the matter of refoulement. There is a prohibition on the return of the refugee to persecution, to torture, or to other relevant serious harm. Thirdly, we have the principle of protection, a principle to which the international community has given its endorsement since 1921, the responsibility of the international community together with states to ensure that refugee rights are protected, that refugees are not disadvantaged by reason of the fact that they have had to flee their own country. Likewise running through the body of refugee law and practice is that principle again of non-discrimination. The refugee by reason of, her, of his or her situation should not be prejudiced in the exercise of basic human rights. At the same time, there is recognition, sometimes contingent, hopefully more often than not, not contingent, recognition that solutions to refugee issues and problems do depend on international cooperation. The principle of solutions, the sixth of the principles, is necessarily linked to that, the principle of international cooperation. And finally, in the question of the management of refugee flows or the responses to refugee flows, we must recognize also, as we do in so many fields of international law, the principles of legality and good faith, which run uh, hand in hand. There are many areas, of course, in which states can exercise their sovereign competence to frustrate, if you like, the movement of persons not only in search of work, but also of persons in search of refuge. But international law 
and the principle of good faith mean that there are certain things which states cannot do, certain things which they must not do uh, in, in, in frustrating the movement in search of refuge. Over nearly then 100 years, the international community has managed to find agreement to come to consensus on certain basic principles. It has recognized the refugee as someone entitled to protection. It has defined the refugee as a person with a well-founded fear of persecution. And through human rights law, it has extended the scope of that protection to others who might be in danger of torture or ill treatment. It has come together repeatedly in international conferences and elsewhere to provide solutions and the necessary material support to countries who are giving first refuge to, re to refugees. It has come together repeatedly to provide resettlement opportunities to refugees who have no hope of returning home and who must look elsewhere than in their country of first asylum. It has come together repeatedly also to facilitate, sometimes to promote voluntary repatriation, return in safety and dignity to the country of origin. A long history then of international law and organization with a strong support of principle and practice for certain basic rules which, might other, which, which have certainly helped to, as it were, penetrate what might otherwise be seen as an area of absolute sovereign competence. Thank you.